This evening, we will be plunging into Romans 6, if I remember correctly. Wait. Seven. 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 Oh, this will be fun. Uh, <laughs> we are plunging into Romans 7, the source for much ink spilt about Romans. Um, we will do that uh, right after we uh, open with prayer, though. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Illumine our hearts, O Master who loves mankind, with the pure light of your divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our mind to the understanding of your gospel teachings. Implant also in us the fear of your blessed commandments, that trampling down all carnal desires we may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things as well-pleasing unto you. For you are the illumination of our souls and bodies of Christ our God, and to you do we ascribe glory together with your Father, who is from everlasting, and your all-holy, good, and life-creating spirit, now and ever, and into ages of ages. Amen. Amen. Read. Take her away. Okay. Um, so Romans 7. This is an interesting chapter, and I always feel like it ought to be the source of several good tongue twisters. Um as the words are woven very tightly in some places. Um, but it's an interesting chapter in that, you know, trying to read it through the eyes of St. John Chrysostom, who insists that it has to be read in a way that makes sense within the church's understanding. And so a great deal cannot be taken in its most obvious face value. Um, sometimes because of rhetorical purposes, sometimes just even the meanings of words cannot be taken in sort of the most simple-minded way one might be inclined to take them, which for me is sort of an interesting commentary on, you know, evangelical reading of the Bible. Um, and I saw this even the first time I did this study when I was still an evangelical many years ago, where I realized that Chrysostom got so very much out of the text because he had some idea what it ought to say already. And so that became the lens through which he was able to give it a much richer reading. So in any case, uh, let's begin by looking at the first six verses. Would someone be so kind as to read that for us? You got to share it with us. I just allowed oh, you to. Right. Hello, David. Yo. What's up? What's up? So we're just getting ready to look at the first six verses of Romans 7. All right. I can read. Thank you. Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then if, while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should be bear, that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. 
But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Thank you. There's a lot there. <laughs> um, okay, so we have this figure of a marriage, a husband and a wife, and yet Paul is using this to talk about the law and the believer. Now, who is who in that image? The husband is who? The law. The law, exactly. And the wife is? The believer. The believer. And maybe in some sense, especially the Jewish believer. Okay. And so we have an illustration from daily life and certainly one that supports the law. If a woman is married to her husband, she's bound to him as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she's released from the law of her husband. So he says it more plainly. So if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she'll be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law. So she's not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. Okay. Now, we seem to have a clear image going here. Husband, wife, law, believer. If the husband dies, then, you know, the, the wife is released. Therefore, verse 4, what would be the natural continuation of that statement? Would be the death of the law, if we were using right. the same metaphor. Exactly. That verse 4 would then naturally read, Therefore, my brethren, the law also died through the body of Christ, that you might be married to another. But that isn't what the apostle says. He turns it around. Suddenly the wife is dying here. Now, do you have any sense of why the apostle might do this? Because Christ does not uh, abolish the law, but fulfill it. Now, that sounds positive. <laughs> Now, that sounds plausible to me, but it's not the direction John Chrysostom takes it. He, he reads it through a rhetorical lens. And what he says is, look, it's perfectly clear that the wife is released from her husband, not only by his death, but by hers. Right. If either of them dies, she's released. OK, and so he's just made the argument you know, if her husband dies, then she's released. And so the natural thing is, so the law has died through Christ. So now you're released. But he doesn't want to alienate the Jews and make it so they won't listen to his argument. So he turns it around. And now, oh, it's you who have died. Suddenly the wife has died because either one serves his purpose. Namely, the release from the law. And this way, he doesn't have to rub in their faces, the law has died in Christ. Even though that's plainly the point he was making. 
Is this also kind of jumping back to, you know, the metaphor that we saw used in the previous chapter where he was talking about being dead to sin? So it's kind of like we're, we're talking, which in this case was obviously talking about the individual believer's death. Now, the way Chrysostom reads it, this is sort of a going beyond that, that Paul has already established we are free from sin in a chapter on, you know, exhorting us to live well. And now returning to doctrines, he's also establishing that we are free from the law. And in particular, his point seems to be to explain to the Jews, look, you are thinking that if you leave the law, that will be adultery. But you have to understand the law died and you died. It will no longer be adultery if you leave the law and, are, and join yourself to Christ. And so that is how Chrysostom understands the apostle to be arguing here. Wow. Thoughts? Okay, so Chrysostom also. I'm a reads, little confused about being free from the law. Okay. I mean, we still have to obey the law, don't we? Or don't we? Is that what Paul's saying? And, and, and what does that mean if we don't have to obey the law? Maybe I just I, need to stay tuned. Yeah, I don't know that I really have an answer to that. I think he is saying we are no longer under the law of Moses. He's in fact going to say we're actually held to a much higher standard now, later. Mm. Mm, but, mm, 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 mm. but that comes... To, that helps. Thank yeah, you. That, that, that comes later in the chapter. That helps. That helps. Again, sort of his ongoing theme is the superiority of grace to law, of Christ to the law, of all that came before. That helps, yeah. Yeah, that helps. And, and the point then being not that the law was ever bad, it was just weak. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't the wrong thing. It wasn't enough of the right thing if you will. I'm, I'm trying to think of that. Uh, well, never mind. I don't, I, I don't want to go off track. I'll shut up. <laughs> okay. Other thoughts before we move along a little? I'm with David. I don't think I have any thoughts that wouldn't take us far off track. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, Suffice it to say what you said helped. Okay, in, good. In, 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 in that, as, as, as I recalled, it just, it just a real quick example, uh, 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 you know, the law, the law forbade adultery. Right. And, and Christ not only forbids adultery, he forbids having lust in your heart, which is even stricter than adult, you know, the law against adultery. Yes. And so Chrysostom is... 
so that in in that sense we are dead to the law because we are alive to a greater law. Yes, and Chrysostom's going to use that very example in elaborating on verse six. Okay, good. Okay. So okay. you're in good company. Well, I know that. <laughs> so he he picks up in verse five, for when we are in the flesh, and he wants to explain there, in the flesh means in evil deeds, in a carnal life, because he says otherwise it would suggest that once people came to believe, they no longer had bodies. And this is going to be a point he makes emphatically again and again, Chrysostom does, that the apostle here is not condemning the law, and he's not condemning the flesh, and he's not condemning the soul, because, you know, God gave the law, it was good. God made the flesh, it was good. God made the soul, it was good. The problem lies somewhere else. Um, and he parses this verse very carefully. The sinful passions which were aroused by the law um, were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. So he will say, the law didn't create the sinful passions. He says it didn't produce them. It was merely an accuser. And so it made them apparent. It made them better known so that the offense of the one who committed these things was greater. So it's not that law produced the sinful passions. It just portrayed more clearly how bad they were. And the same way when he talks about um, the sinful passions at work in our members, his point is, it's not the members that are producing sinful passions. It's not the members that are doing the sins. It is the sinful passions in them that are producing the ill effects. And he has a lovely sentence there that I want to quote. Actually, it's two sentences. He says, for the soul ranks as a performer and the fabric of the flesh as a liar sounding as the performer obliges it. So the discordant tune is to be ascribed not to the latter, but to the former sooner to, than to the latter. So it's like, if the song sounds bad, you don't blame the, the, the instrument for it, you blame the player. <laughs> and so the problem is not our flesh. So going on to verse six then, but now we have been delivered from the law having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Um, and he points out here that, again, Paul is not accusing either the flesh or the law. That it is neither the flesh that needed deliverance nor the law, but us. So how are we delivered? It happened by a death. It says by dying to what we he were held by. And what he says is dying, the, the death of the old man. Now that old man was held down by sin. So with his death, the, the, the chain was deadened and broken. It no longer held us. But this is not the freedom to live listlessly, to take Chrysostom's very favorite word, but to a new kind of service of the spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. 
And the way Chrysostom understands this is Adam sinned, and by his sin, his body and ours became subject to death and suffering and all sorts of maladies. And so he, he begins to build an analogy that, according to the footnotes, actually comes from a work of Plato of the soul being like a, a chariot being led by winged horses. I don't know whether that's truly what Chrysostom had in mind, but that's what the footnote says. In any case, so the body having become subject to death and suffering, the horse became less active and obedient. So now we're, we're in a chariot race and the horses are, are not behaving very well because of death and suffering. But he goes on and says, Christ by baptism and by the Holy Spirit made the horse more nimble. And so now we have an easier race than the ancients did. And since we have an easier race, we have a more challenging course. So this is picking up what David was saying. We are forbidden not just murder, but anger, not just adultery, but lust, not just false, to, false oaths, but even true ones. We are not only to love friends, but even enemies. And that these are not somehow free will offerings over and above what's necessary as living a life of celibacy or poverty is, but these are binding with the threat of hell if we disobey. And he quotes our Lord saying in the Sermon on the Mount, except your righteousness exceed that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And so he says, we've got a tougher race before us than they did. And he points out how among the Christians, celibacy and martyrdom, which had been rare even among the righteous before Christ, had become common within the church. So he sees all of that in this phrase, serving in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. So, any thoughts, comments, questions, corrections? Okay, well, let us go on then. Um, would someone kindly read for us verses 7 through 12? Sure, I can. I I, thank you. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I once was alive without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. Therefore, the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. Thank you. So, now Paul takes up an objection, and Chrysostom explains that he's doing this again for rhetorical purposes, to make a point 
without seeming to accuse people. I didn't quite follow all of that point, but nevertheless, it's there if you want to try to read it, uh, read Chrysostom for yourself and make sense of it. But he, he sees this objection. Okay, we see all this bad stuff coming from the law, right? Um, and so is the law sin? And immediately he says, certainly not. So for the Jews who are concerned about this, he's got them on his side again. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. Now, as Chrysostom talks about this, he's saying it's not that people were ignorant of sin, right? That, you know, if people were truly ignorant of sin, then the flood and the destruction of Sodom are inexplicable or unjust even. But what he's saying is, although people had a sense of sin before the law came, their sense of it was not so clear. Um, you know, it, it was not so definite and distinct. And, um, and what? And what he goes on then is to say how, to show the weakness of the law. For of course, the purpose of the law was to stop sin, but it had the opposite effect. And when he says, uh, sin taking the opportunity uh, by the commandment produced in me all manner of evil desire, for apart from the law, sin is dead. What Chrysostom understands him to be saying here is, okay, you have a desire for something that isn't good, and you have some sense that it isn't good, but when the law actually comes and forbids the thing, it's forbidden fruit, and suddenly your, your desire for it grows greatly. Now, because it's inaccessible, it becomes much more desirable and it becomes a raging desire or vehement is the word he uses. And so when he says, um, for apart from the law, sin was dead. Um, it's like, you know, it didn't have the, the same force behind it. And the same way when he says, I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang, sin, sin revived and I died. It's not that I didn't have, I didn't know sin before, and I didn't have sin before, but suddenly the commandment came, the thing was forbidden, my desire increased, but because the thing was forbidden by the law, my condemnation was greater for breaking it. And so I died is sort of a, a bold way of saying my, my condemnation increased. So is this as simple as kind of the, you know, the, the knowledge that that special sin that comes from doing something that we perceive to be taboo. Or I guess the thing that I think of is, you know, if I leave cookies on the counter, eventually my kids are going to go and probably find those cookies and eat them when they shouldn't want them. But if I tell them those cookies are on the counter, you're not supposed to go and eat them. They're going to immediately go and eat those cookies. Mm -hmm. Yes, I, that I makes, that makes the cookies taste better. Yeah. <laughs> Mmm, cookies. <laughs> Forbidden cookies. Yeah. The the best the best uh, flavor from Toll House is the forbidden That's right. Oreo cookie. <laughs> okay, so 
So far, so good. Other thoughts? <laughs> okay, so then... it, explain, it explains a lot about uh, sexual behavior, that's for sure. I would say elaborate, but never mind. <laughs> <laughs> you were going to say what? Elaborate, but never mind. No, 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 no. no. I, don't... I, I think we're recording this, right? So. Uh... Yeah, I don't think that needs to. I don't think that needs to be elaborated. I think people know exactly what I'm talking. About. <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about, David. Yeah. Right. Okay. Third-rate third romance, low rent rendezvous. Okay. So, would someone uh, please read for us verses <coughs> thir thirteen through twenty? Sure, I can do that. <clears throat> Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not, but sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin, through the commandment, might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice, but what I hate, that I do. If, then, I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Thank you. That's a tough one to read. Yeah, that's the part I think would make a good tongue twister. If you, <laughs> you know. It's also the part that has a lot of ink spilled about. Mm-hmm. Father, would you like to elaborate on that a bit? Uh, it becomes a question. It, is Paul talking about a Christian? Is he talking about a faithful Jew under the law? Is he, I mean, this is what the debates are about. Um, is he talking um, about himself? Even there's people who've read it even like that because he's saying I, I, I. Um, it's, it's a confusing rhetorical um, path that he's he's woven. So there's just a lot of contemporary, like modern scholarship that doesn't know what to do with it. Okay. Thank you. Now, Chrysostom, if I remember correctly, takes it very definitely, definitely that the apostle is suddenly stepping back to the law before the coming of Christ. Um, I, I think the phrase... That makes sense from the way he's been reading the whole chapter. Right. So he speaks about the, the soul comporting itself before the law. And so... Um, first Could I interject real quick, Reed? Oh, I, I think that 
the reason is because who who doesn't read like verse 20 19 and 20 and go that sounds like my dilemma as well right right so because that's a shared dilemma between a christian and a, a jew i think that's where it starts getting slippery and then it starts causing all sorts of questions about what's going on that'd be one that, of my guesses mm -hmm. yeah that makes sense i mean i i can certainly feel some real um familiarity with some of these phrasings right it's like some of these words let me start with 19 and 20. I, I have a quote from Chrysostom there. So for the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. And so Chrysostom there says, do you see how he acquits the essence of the soul as well as the essence of the flesh from accusation and removes it entirely to sinful actions? For if the soul willeth not the evil, it is cleared. And if he does not work it himself, the body too is set free, and the whole may be charged upon the evil moral choice. Now the essence of the soul and body and of that choice are not the same. For the first two are God's works, and the other is a motion from ourselves towards whatever we please to direct it. For willing indeed is natural and is from God, but willing on this wise is our own and from our own mind. And he said this in, in quite a few other ways as he goes through this, um, saying that here the apostle is taking great care not to accuse the flesh, not to accuse the soul, which are, again, the works of God, but to accuse sin. You know, just a, a quick point that, that arose to me, going back to the, the idea that there may be some reference to a kind of platonic philosophy that... Uh, that St. Paul is working with here, you know, one of the points that, that Plato goes to great lengths to stress is that nobody wills for bad, for, for their actions to result in, in bad things. Exactly. I mean, if you're doing something, it's because you think that's going to provide, that's going to present you with, you know, the, the good action. I mean, you might ultimately do what we would consider evil, like kill multiple people, but it's to do a good thing, like get yourself lots of power and money, secure your city state, something like that. And he like equates the, the, the sort of what we, what we call the evil there with, with incorrect knowledge. It almost seems like Paul, St. Paul is doing something similar perhaps, except instead of incorrect knowledge, which would be the platonic stricture here, it's the sin that is tricking you into thinking that, oh, well, I'm going to do this thing that's, that's taboo, that's sinful and X, Y, and Z, and it's going to provide all these good things for me. But yeah. ultimately what's going to result is evil and bad things, both to me and to others. Right. And I've, I've heard this argued other places that, um, you know, sort of we, we naturally choose what is good. And so in some sense, if we're choosing evil, it must be because our knowledge is wrong. Right. And again, I, and again, Father I don't think Steve, that's what Saint, I'm sorry. I was just saying, I don't think that's what St. Paul is saying, but I, but I think it's kind of, it's kind of a similar construction and he's kind of tweaking it um, slightly, but in a way that would be recognizable. I was going to say, I Thank think you. Father Steve had just posted on this a few weeks ago. Thank you. 
So there are a number of points here. You know, verse 13 is what is good, become death to me. And the point is certainly not. But the point of all of this is that sin might show its full sinfulness. Right. Um, Chrysostom says on verse 13, that is, that it might be shown what great evil sin is, namely a listless will and inclinableness to the worst side, the actual doing, and the perverted judgment, which maybe touches a little on what you just said, Cooper. He's saying that this, these are sort of the things in which the sin consists, the listless will, being inclined to do what is worse, the actual doing, and then the, poor, the perverted judgment that led to it. For this is the cause of all the evils, but he amplifies it by pointing out the exceeding grace of Christ and teaching them what an evil he freed the human race from, which by the medicines used to cure it had become worse and was increased by the preventives. So we're sort of saying, okay, we had this sin that we were facing and we had some sense of conscience against it, but you know, then the law was placed against it. But what happened was all of these things just kept making it worse. Because it's sort of like, as the thing became more forbidden, the judgment increased as we transgressed, the, you know, the, the more clear command. And as our desire grew by its being forbidden. And to verse 13, he also has this very interesting sentence uh, for some of us with evangelical backgrounds. Hereby, he also shows the preeminence of grace above the law, the preeminence above, not the conflict with the law. So it's not that grace is opposed to law, it's that grace is superior to law. Once again, law is not bad, it's just weak. It can't get the job done that it was aiming at, and grace can. Which really meshes well with what we saw the Apostle Paul saying in Acts to some of the Jewish groups where he was saying, in Christ you can be freed from all the things that the law wouldn't set you free from. So he goes on, uh, verse 14, he talks about the law being spiritual, saying that means it's a teacher of virtue. It leads away from sin. And then on into 15, for what I am doing, I do not understand. And, you know, verse 16, I... Uh, when he says, for I am carnal... Sold under sin. Is that a reference to the fall? Well, what Chrysostom said there is, for when the body had become mortal, it was henceforth a necessary thing for it to receive concupiscence and anger and pain and all the other passions, which required a great deal of wisdom to prevent their flooding us and sinking reason in the depths of sin. For in themselves, they were not sin, that is the desires, but when their extravagancy was unbridled, it wrought this effect. The, thus, desire is not sin, but when it is run into extravagance, being not minded to keep within the laws of marriage, but springing even upon other men's wives, then the thing henceforward becomes adultery, yet not by reason of the desire, but by reason of its exorbitancy. Is that seem to help at all. I couldn't hear you. Oh, I'm sorry. 
So what he's talking about is when we became mortal, we were flooded with all of these, the, the desires which were good became exorbitant, became excessive. Right. And this is, I think, what he means by saying they're carnal, we're carnal and sold under sin. But my understanding is when he says, when we became mortal, he is referring to the fall. Right. Yes? Yes. Okay. That's what I'm trying to clarify. So he talks about, um, you know, verse 15, I, I, I don't understand. He doesn't really mean, I don't understand what I'm doing. I, I, I don't know that I'm doing wrong. He's saying, by sort of natural law, I understand what is good. And then the Mosaic law comes along and I perfectly agree with it. I say, that's the right thing. I agree with that. I should do that. But I keep finding that's not what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. Not as though under compulsion, he, he, and Chrysostom stresses this. It's like, it's not that, well, I sin because I have no choice. It's like, no, I know what's good. I approve what's good. I see what's good in the law. That's even better. Yes, I approve. But somehow I keep finding that, you know, somehow surreptitiously sin has come in and snuck in and, and deceived me and has produced sin in me, even though I didn't approve of it. Um, there's an interesting verse for us um, in verse 18. For I know that, I that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. And um, Chrysostom there comments, because, you know, certainly plenty of evangelical theology talks about our, our, our sin nature, you know, the, as though the body were the source of sin. But he says, but if he does say there dwelleth, dwelleth no good thing in it, still this is no charge against the flesh, for the fact that no good dwelleth in it does not show that it is evil itself. Now we admit that the flesh is not so great as the soul and is inferior to it, yet not contrary or opposed to it or evil. So something kind of similar. The soul is greater than the body. That doesn't mean the body's bad. It's just not as exalted as the soul. But that it is beneath the soul as a heart beneath a harper or a ship under the pilot. And these are not contrary to those who guide and use them, but go with them entirely, yet are not of the same honor with the artist. As then a person who says that the art resides not in the harp or the ship, but in the pilot or harper, is not finding fault with the instruments, but pointing out the great difference between them and the artist. So Paul, in saying that in my flesh dwelleth no good thing, is not finding fault with the body, but pointing out the soul's superiority. So to try to sum that up, he's saying that, you know, when you hear some hear beautiful music, you don't say what a great harp. You recognize that no, no, it's the harpist who's producing that. That the, but you know, if you say, well, it's not the harp producing it by itself. You're not criticizing the harp. You're just recognizing it's the artist who is producing the beautiful music on the harp. And so, in the same way, our flesh is the instrument that our soul guides and has charge of, um, and plays, I guess that would be the right word. And so when he say there is no good in the flesh, what he's saying is, right, flesh is not the right place to look to that for, you look to the soul. 
since we could have a completely incompetent harp player come and play the most well-constructed harp in the world, and it's going to sound awful. That's right. So what he says, but now it is no longer, whoops, what he said, that is, hold on, hold on. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. He is not saying that there's anything bad, bad in his flesh. He is simply saying that his flesh is lacking. Right. It's an instrument being played badly. Right. It's like criticizing a harp for not playing beautiful music when the harp's just sitting there without anybody playing it. Right. So are we to take this here as will is present in the flesh or, or is will, I guess I was thinking of will as a component of the soul or spirit. Um, I don't know if Chrysostom addresses that specifically. He doesn't seem to say a great deal about the will. Um, I would think maybe the way he takes this more is simply, I have the desire to do the one thing, the, the will more in the sense of desire, but it isn't what I end up doing. Mm. Well, to take oh, the... Yeah, that might be an interesting, you know, I, I'd be interested to see what the Greek is as to whether it could be um, a form that's interpreted as also desire. Because, yeah, that would make sense if we're talking about it more in that sense rather than the capacity to bring something to fruition. Maybe that's where some of the trouble in reading this comes from, because we have such a strong sense of what will means, you know, thinking about that from kind of a protestant but also just kind of a modern perspective mm -hmm. right yeah, i mean he does say here for to will he says is present with me but how to perform that which is good i find not here again in the words i find not he does not speak of any ignorance or perplexity but a kind of thwarting and crafty assault made by sin well i'm going to carry the metaphor a step further and see uh, and, and and ask whether or not you think this might be right okay but let's say let's say let's say let's say the flesh the flesh is the the flesh is the harp right. Mm -hmm. Let's say that the the will is the person playing the harp. Mm -hmm. But the person playing the harp does not know how to play. But how to perform what is good I do not find. I, I think the way Chrysostom says it, he says, um, after dividing man into the soul and the body, he says that the flesh ranks among, the ra flesh has less of reason and ranks among things to be led, not among things that lead, but the soul has more wisdom and can see what is to be done and right. what not, yet is not equal to pulling in the horse as it wishes. Right. It seems almost more as though he's saying, because of the fall, our bodies have been flooded with desires, with passions, exorbitant desires. The desires were there to start with, but the fall made them exorbitant, extravagant. 
And because of this, even though the the soul knows what ought to be done, it finds that the body, sort of like an ill-tempered horse, does not respond well to its commands and it doesn't have the strength to control it. But it's not that the body itself is doing ill, it's being led by these passions. Yes. So he almost seems to be saying it's it's not that the soul is trying to guide the is playing the instrument badly. It's not that the instrument is bad. It's that there's something coming from the outside, interfering with the instrument, making oh. it rebel against the commands it's given. Well, that's kind of almost why I was wondering if desire might not be another way to read the word will mm-hmm. in this case, because in that. Um, in that case, it's it's really more about the impetus for this thing. It's not that there isn't an impetus to do good in me, in my flesh. It's just I I, I do something, and that's not that's not ultimately what happens. It I, mm-hmm. I'm... yeah. I, I'm a little I'm a little cautious about 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 conflating the will and passions. To me, they're two different things. But at least in English, the word will is a little tricky that way because sometimes it means i want <laughs> you know i desire yeah um father as someone who has has studied greek do you have any uh anything you can can provide us as to what what's going on with the word that's being translated as will here So, thalo uh, has different definitions. To, to will, like have in mind or intend to be resolved to do, to do something, to desire or to wish. Uh, it can use, mean to love, to like to do a thing, to take delight in, have pleasure. That's what. Okay. So it's, yeah. it's, it's very broad and it can have, it, it sounds like. Yeah. But I would, like. but I would distinguish that from sex drive, the need for security, the need for a recognition. That the, uh, I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think of other more psychological names for the passions. But none of those things, in and of themselves, are bad, are they? Well, no, they're not. They're supposed to be controlled by the will. But we can't control them by the will because of the fall. I thought that's what we were talking about. And so they're disproportionate now. Right, but I I just, my point was, I don't think the will that's being used here is that, I I had originally kind of been thinking about that as like the controlling element, and I I don't really think that's what's going on here. I, I think, I think, I, I'm. I think this is having more to do with just the things that I'm desirous to do, whether or not, it, and it wouldn't necessarily be pa- passions. It seems like, yeah, we are talking about something that's that is an over, um, an over overly zealous desire for something, 
like you wanted you wanted to have sex with somebody else's wife or sex outside of marriage or something like that. Whereas here, it's more just like, well, you you want things. That's something that's just inherent in being a bodied being. Right. Right. But I, I don't I don't think of passion. And I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. Are we getting way off on your read? No, I, I mean, I think this is really okay. we're trying to understand how to apply this. Okay, because because I don't I don't think passion is necessarily I don't think passion is necessarily over. Um, overly, okay. Uh, we 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 have. <laughs> I hate to keep going back to sex, but it's the most obvious example. You know, we we, we have a passion for sex, and and, and, and we have a, we got a passion for sex, and that's not inherently bad. That that's how procreation comes about. Okay. And it, it doesn't become a passion when, when, it, when there's too much of it. It is always a passion. We have a passion for security. And, and a passion for security is, is not, you know, I mean, it, it's a, a passion, a want, a desire. Uh, a, 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 but a, a powerful desire that, that, that drives us to do something. And, and uh, so that it's painful if we don't do it, which gets back to the root of the word passion, which I won't get into but anyhow uh uh so so you know i mean we're, we're we're driven to security okay but on the other hand if you drive to security i mean your drive to security can get so bad that you're greedy and that you're selfish okay sure that's bad but it's a passion even if you keep it within normal bounds because it's a drive that, that that's that's what i'm trying to say is we're born with drives passions and that the will controls those drives and the will controls those passions. And the law tells us how to control those passions, how to control those drives. Thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal. But we can't do it. Our will is not able to do it. And verse 18, this is just what I'm what I'm hearing from Christosom. In my understanding of what the verse says is that in my fill, nothing good dwells, that what I need to control my will does not dwell in my flesh. For to will is, I have the will, but how to perform it, how to use that will to perform what is good in controlling my passions, I don't find. For the good that I will to do, I do not, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. The, and, and sin is my inability to control my passions. I'll shut up. Okay. No, no. I mean, I think those are good points. Um, I think that the word passion has tended to be used in the church in sort of, as sort of a technical term. And Father Daniel, you may need to correct me here. But um, that desires are God created. We were created with desires, and Chrysostom says that. But the word passion has been reserved for desires that have gone beyond their natural bounds. Um, is that right, Father? Other problems were used in English. <laughs> I'm sorry. Other problems were using English. 
You've so, responded that we're using English. I'm having a hard time hearing you. I am so sorry. The problem is English. Using these terms that have so much baggage oh. for us in modern time, kind of what Cooper's talking about with the will there. Um, so, I mean, I think you're both saying the same thing, just disagreeing about what how you understand passion. I think David is using passion like desire. There's a natural um, desire slash passion and passion in a modern sense that exist to procreate, to eat, to et cetera, et cetera. When those get out of whack, those are passions. They are the desires gone bad, but passion in the old sense. <laughs> It's like we're the passion in the sense of like we're passive before them because they now have overtaken us. There's like an oppressive element to them. It's like an infection or uh, an oppression from like a, almost a demonic source could be in that sense. That's what, the passion. We are, we're subject to it. We don't have control anymore. Okay, so it might I, I, I it might have been better if I used words like instinct or drive. Yeah, and then you've got all the Freudian problems in using those too. <laughs> I know, I, I know, I know that. I know that. Like I said, the problem the problem is English. The pro the problem is English. But as long as we agree on definitions, we can you know we can use the English. But yeah, we need yeah. a definition section here. Yeah. Yeah. But, but I take it that the word that we're seeing as will in verses 18 through 20 is not, that Chrysostom doesn't seem to see the apostle as really talking about what are the limits of our will, you know, really considering the will as this thing in and of itself that's free or maybe isn't free. Or I, I do read him as saying much more, the, the desire, you know, I want to do what's good. I approve of what's good. I, I, I see it and I say, yeah, that's what I want to do, but somehow it isn't what I end up doing. I say, oh, that thing is bad. That's not what I want to do, but somehow I keep doing it. Yeah. So I, I don't know that this is really a, a, a discourse about will in any of the kind of formal senses of that as one aspect of the soul, but just sort of saying, you know, I know what's good. I want to do it. I know what's bad. I don't want to do it, but that's not what I end up doing. I think this is part of uh, the challenge trying to make texts do things that they, that's not the original. Um, not that there's like one single original meaning in the text, because good luck trying to figure out what exactly is in Paul's mind. Exactly. Exactly. But that Chrysostom reads it rhetorically and the way that Paul is going at it instead of as, again, we kind of circle back to this as a systematic text where he's got a, a, a tight vocabulary where he's, you know, giving us a theological anthropology about what it means to struggle with, with the will. What the will is not able to, that's not what he's doing. Even though that's how, when I 
growing up, that's we went to this passage to do that. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure I wrote a whole paper on this in, in college, and that's precisely what I did. So, yeah. Reed, are you saying, for instance, verse 19 could be read for the good that I desire to do? Yes. I understand what you're saying. I say that with no particular authority, just that's my take on it. And I don't see John Chrysostom seeming to take it in some different direction than that. I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. I, I actually went to, I, I just happened to have a, a King James version close at hand. And, and the word that it used was wood, which, you know, I, I think is, is a little bit less. It doesn't quite strike me as going in that direction. It's, it, it's interesting because I think it's, I agree with Father Daniel. It's one of those instances. I think will is a very good translation here, but it's just, it's got, in the way I think about what we're talking about when we're talking about willing something, it, it's a word that has so much baggage yeah. with it, especially in the context of modernity when it's almost like we've, we've got this sense of wanting to be entirely will. Well, anybody who's studying English will tell you that to be is the most challenging verb in the language. And that's kind of what we're dealing with here. Uh, but, but uh, I like wood if I may, because uh, because then I could read for the good that I would do if I could do it. You, you all agree with me? That's what Paul's saying? Yeah, I like that. Yeah, I mean, more or less. I notice we're running up on time here, Reed. So. <laughs> I've only got a couple verses left. Yeah. What time? <laughs> Time, a lot of baggage of time. <laughs> Maybe we should go ahead and finish up, though. Um, time sorry, really doesn't it, exist, you know. It's just a way of measuring motion, but never mind. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'm sorry we can't give a better re resolution to that, David. I, I wish I had the background to say more. but. Well, I, I, I hope I didn't make things too difficult, but it's a very, very, these are very, very challenging verses. I, David, I, I, think I, I think I started us down this road, so. Okay. Well, and if, you know. It's the two. It's the two lawyers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, as long as it's somebody else's fault, I'm fine. Okay, go ahead, yeah. Reed. <laughs> <laughs> well, and if we're, if we're trying to work out what to make of these and what to do with them. <coughs> that's time well spent. But let's go ahead and read 21 through 25 here. Would someone finish it up for us, please? Oh, I'll go ahead and read, and then I'll then I'll put myself on mute for the rest of the meeting. <laughs> I find that a law. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Okay, so let me make just a few comments here. Um, 
So we, we see the word law, I mean, it's obviously the continuation of the same argument, and we see the word law being used in several senses here. Um, let me, uh, first of all, begin in 22, for I delight in the law of God, which could mean both the natural law and the law of Moses. Verse 23, but I see another law in my members, and it elaborates at the end of that verse, bringing me into captivity to the law of sin. He says, now this is law, not like a way of ordering one's life, but a law in the sense of the abject obedience that people have paid to it, have, have rendered to it. And then he talks about the law of my mind, which I think he's, he, uh, Chrysostom says is the natural law here. And so sort of the, 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 the law of God, the law of Moses is consistent with the natural law that's in my own mind. And yet this other thing that keeps bringing me to obey it seems to be a law as well that I can't get away from. And I think the way uh, Chrysostom takes this, he says, um, you know, we're still in the time before the coming of Christ. He's simply laying out the dilemma, the terrible position that the man facing the law found before Christ. And he just sort of ends with a sigh. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And, you know, sort of says, okay, have I made it clear how much we need grace? And then, you know, I guess gives the answer. I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Um, if I could read a little more from Chrysostom here on uh, verse 23 in particular, he says, Surely it does not make the members to be sin, but it makes them as distinct from sin as possible. Right. For he, he says, I see another law in my members. Well, the thing that is in something isn't the thing itself, he says. For that, that, for that which is in a thing is diverse from that wherein it is. And as then the commandment also is not evil because by its sin took occasion. So neither is the nature of the flesh, even if sin subdues us by means of it. And I was thinking about that when we talked earlier. It's like sin somehow subdues us by our flesh, but it's not the sin that's, it's not the flesh that's the problem. For in this way, the soul will be evil and much more so too, since it has authority in matters of action. But these things are not so, certainly they are not, since neither if a tyrant and a robber were to take possession of a splendid mansion and a king's court, would the circumstance be any discredit to the house, inasmuch as the entire blame would come on those who contrived such an act? And then he talks about those, he's thinking of the Manichaeans who want to say, no, no, the body is the whole problem. It's the body that's wicked. And so Chrysostom continues, but such doc doctrines as these are not the church's for it is the sin only that she condemns, and both the laws that which God has given, both that of nature and that of Moses, she says, are hostile to this, that is to sin, and not to the flesh. For the flesh she denies to be sin, for it is a work of God's, and one very useful to in order to virtue, if we live soberly.
So again, he sees the apostle by talking about the law within the members as defending the members of the body, saying, you know, it's like a household that's been taken over by a robber. The household's not to blame, it's the robber. In this case, it's the sin, not the body. So that's about as much as I know to say. In fact, it's more than I know to say. Any other thoughts, comments, questions, insights, objections? So I take it that utter depravity in, in our, our body is right out. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Hey, gracias. <laughs> Well, and I know one time I had a friend who was showing me some text by very hardcore Calvinist who was talking about the sin nature at great length. But at some point, even he backed up and said, now, when we say sin nature, we don't mean, you know, our nature as God made it because the nature God made is good. <laughs> it's more like a second nature. So. But yeah, I, I think total depravity and sin nature are definitely out here. Well, I guess the, I guess that would have to be the separation of a Calvinist from you know a, 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 a Gnostic who believes that uh, you know matter was created by the demiurge. I, I've yet to meet a Calvis, Calvinist who's gone that far. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean. Speaking from almost total ignorance, my impression is that to the Gnostics then, the nature of flesh was evil. To the Calvinists, the nature was good, but in the fall it changed. Or maybe if they're speak, speaking very carefully, kind of a second nature came in. Yeah, what had been a good nature just became utterly corrupt. That's my understanding, too. Yeah. And it's interesting because, you know, from, I guess, a modern English exegetical point of view, I can see, you know, I can see that reading. Well, that's a lot what's going on with me tonight is fighting that reading. Yeah. Uh, because I've been, because, because I'm, I'm, uh, 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 2001 you know 50 50 five zero 50 years of protestant it's really tough <laughs> uh you know to, to get to get out of it you know yeah and, and 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 then after 50 years of protestant you got almost 10 years catholic so uh it's it's a challenge it's it's, it's very it's very very hard to get to get out to get out of those readings yeah, but that's why I'm glad we're doing this because the more I look at this, and the more I think about what 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 Reed has shared with us, and you know, in, in reading Christostom, I I can see it. No, he's he's not he's not criticizing the flesh. He's not criticizing the flesh at all. Mm -hmm. I, I it, it, it that's 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 a very that's a superficial interpretation, if you will. Mm -hmm. uh, for and I, I I keep going back to eighteen. I think eighteen's critical and 18a if you will <laughs> for i for i know that 
in me that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. The idea that that means that flesh is evil or flesh is bad is an unwarranted inference, if you mm-hmm. will. Right. right. It does. That's not a value judgment on flesh at all. It just says. That's not it, the source it, of good. That, that's. It just says it's not the source of good. It doesn't. That's not the same as saying it's the source of evil. Right. Yeah. You know? It's a, it's a classic logical fallacy, uh, but... Uh, yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. But uh, as, father is, as, as, as Father said, I can't remember we were talking about that point or some other point, you know, a lot of ink being spilled, a lot of ink's been spilled on that fallacy, I guess. Uh, and, and Chrysostom makes almost exactly the point you did, that, you know, these words simply do not say that the flesh is evil. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, no. Again, in Chrysostom parses Paul very carefully throughout this chapter to show that, in fact, he never accuses the flesh and never accuses the law. No. And he just goes on to say, well, I know what I want to do, but I don't know how to do it. Right. Yes. Yeah. I keep. Yeah. And, so, that, that, and that runs down to 24, you know, it's that, that beautiful, ver- I, loved, I love verse 24, I, I'll bet you other people do too, mm-hmm. because they certainly know the wretched man that I am who will deliver me from this body of death, that, 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 that's such a beautiful verse, it's just, I, I think, uh, Father said something about everybody would agree with that, and I think so too, I think verse 24 is very universal, whether, whether you're a Christian or not, <laughs> I, th- I think that's very universal for all men. And women is like you know what who's going to deliver me from this well and it's almost like i you know i kind of thinking about rome i'm jumping ahead just a little bit here but thinking about romans as a whole it seems like this is a rhetorical strategy that paul that paul kind of employs a lot here that he'll go through this construction this place where you know we'll seem to just get ourselves tied in the knots about oh you know all all this stuff that i'm trying to deal with i can't do what i want to do and he, and he ends up just throwing up his hands yeah and i and i think i think that's in, that's intentional because that's kind of just saying yeah you know this is like thank god for jesus and thank god for grace thank god that god is merciful and if we keep in mind here that Paul's real point seems to be to present that, that the law is good but inadequate hmm. to people who are wanting to hold on to the law. That, uh, you know, his real point is to pry some of these people's fingers off of the law so that they can hold fully to Christ. But it's and, and, I, and, I, and I must say, it seems to me that there, there's that there's a lot of contemporary application for this. Uh, Do you want to complete that thought briefly? Well, I'm just thinking of a woman, woman that I knew who, who was very, very, very dedicated to her church. Very, very dedicated to Christ and to God. And uh, at one point she said to me, she said, you know, I don't understand what the problem is. It's real easy. You just follow the rules. And I didn't know quite how to respond. 
but but I think I think that's what Paul's talking about is that no, it's not you just follow the rules. There's there's more to it than that. Am I wrong? Well, I mean, here I would take it he's talking specifically about the law of Moses. Yeah, well, that's what she was talking about. I mean, in in in, in a general sense, that's what she was talking about. That that you know the. Well, but I mean, insofar as I guess we're talking about the rules, even in this day, you know, and age under under Christ, I mean, it, we're we're talking about the law as an element there, because that that's the idea that the law the law is still there when we're talking about something in terms of rules. You know, this is this is the thing that you're to do. It's like, well, you're not. That's that's not the point anymore because the, you know, it, it's almost like it, it, what it's saying is, you know, the point is to get to this point where you're you're not even, you're not even desirous of that that thing. And if you still got, you know, that desire in you, because of course you're you're human and you do. You're you know that that's still an aspect there. That's the thing that's lacking. And in fact, it's going to get worse because you know you follow you follow the rules. Well, sure, but boy, the taboo of those rules just build up and build up and build up and you're going to want to break them that much more the more that you just focus on that yeah but just following the rules does not bring you to god correct you got to love god you've got to love god and you that means you've got to open your heart to god and you've got to let god in you've got to let god in Yeah, I I don't know. I sort of struggle with that because I'm thinking, um, you know, as an evangelical, I, I read the word law to stand for all commandments. Right. Right. And yet it's not that that's not what the law means here. It really is the law of Moses. You know, and Chrysostom has talked about how in the Sermon on the Mount, Christ <laughs> calls on us to obey, you know, to run the harder race to obey commands much stricter than the law could ever demand because those to whom it was given did not have baptism in the spirit. You know, that we love God by obeying his commands. So that, that, that's, I, I may not disagree with you, but some of the words make me uncomfortable. <laughs> Do you think we need to be recording all this or maybe we could stop recording? Well, it is 8.50. We should probably stop. Okay. Uh, let's see. I'll quit sharing. I'll remember to do that for a change. I, I think. I think. Yeah. I think Father's indicating he might be desirous of dinner. <laughs> so anyway, next week we have chapter eight. Um, I've been thinking if there is a chapter of Romans that can't be done in a week, it's probably chapter eight. That's right. <laughs> So um, I, if it's acceptable, Father, I may allow myself the option to break eight up over two weeks if, uh, if I just don't think I can do it in one. So I may suggest that we also don't have class for clean week. That we don't have class what? For the first week of Lent. Oh, oh, oh because, okay. Because... Or you guys are welcome to, but I will probably <laughs> not because I'll be going every single night. Right. So that would be two two Wednesdays hence. 
Correct. Okay. So yeah, that part be... two, I mean, if you guys want to, that's fine, but I'll be hopefully eating something after pre-sanctified it. <laughs> that sounds good. And maybe we can do chapter eight in a week, but. Oh, you don't have to. Why don't we stop recording? Oh, that's a good idea. <laughs> Everyone's going to know what I'm going to have for dinner next. 